Welcome to True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. This is episode six, The Murder of Suzanne Capper. Hey everyone, welcome back to True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. This is episode six, The Torture and Murder of Suzanne Capper, Part 1. Before we get started here, I just wanted to issue a trigger warning for this episode because it contains extreme content. The content of this episode is very violent and graphic. It includes description of torture and murder. If you are sensitive to any of these topics or extreme content or violence in general, or if you were offended by extreme violence and gore, it's recommended that you do not continue listening to this episode. This may be an episode that you want to skip. I also wanted to state the discussion of this death is not intended to cause any disrespect whatsoever to the memory of the victim or her family and loved ones. I do not glorify the evil deeds of the murderers, nor do I condone any of the acts described herein. There are just no words to describe the horror this family has gone through. I have decided to split this case up into two parts. This week is part one, and it is not the super graphic part. Part one, we will be talking about the early life of Suzanne Capper, how she got involved in hanging out with these people, a little background on them, and what life was like at the house they shared. I will also talk about the heavy drug use and how this may have played a factor into what happened to Suzanne. Next week will be part two of the Suzanne Capper case, and this is where it gets pretty graphic. Part two will start with the torture and murder of Suzanne. It'll go into detail about everything that happened to her. Then we will talk about everything after the murder and what happened to everyone involved. I think it's better to split up this case because, like I said before, part two is just going to be so graphic in detail. All right, so let's get started on part one. At the time of her death, Suzanne Capper was just 16 years old. Her case did not receive tons of media attention. And I did some research on this, and it said that it was probably because of the abduction and murder of James Bolger, which happened around the same time. James was a two-year-old that was abducted and murdered in England also around this time. So that's probably why her case was not covered as widely by the British press. She was born in Manchester, England in 1976. She was the younger of two girls born to Elizabeth Capper. Neither of them knew their birth father, but they were both raised by their stepfather, and his name was John, 
And by all accounts, he treated both of these girls as his own. They were very close, and they seemed to have a really healthy, blended family. Suzanne had moderate learning disabilities. During this time, she was called a, quote, slow learner, which is a term that I do not like to use, but that's what they used back during this time. And it left her with the understanding and the skill set of a younger child. She was in her last two years at Mostyn Brook High School. And by all accounts, she was described as very loving, friendly, and also eager to please. Most people that met her said she never met a stranger. Everyone from her neighborhood and people that just knew her casually would always say she was one of the nicest people they'd ever met in their lives. Sadly, this was part of what led to her demise. Her kind and gentle nature made her an easy target to be taken advantage of. And we see this all the time and it is very, very sad. She was easily manipulated. I also found out that Suzanne spent some time in a state home or foster home, which meant she was placed into state care for a period of time. Details of this are somewhat sketchy, and it's not known to the public why this happened, but it probably involves some kind of inability for her parents to take care of her. Suzanne reportedly missed large chunks of school. Her grades were all over the place, and she received special education services. Suzanne was well-liked by most of her peers, and she really made friends easily. Sadly, though, she did experience a bit of bullying and teasing due to her disabilities and the fact that she did attend special classes. She was a sensitive girl, and the mistreatment combined with the stresses at home led Suzanne to seek solace at the homes of other people in the neighborhood. Suzanne was such a people person, and she was also really good with children. She was a very popular babysitter in her neighborhood due to her sunny and patient disposition. A lot of families wanted to hire her. One family in particular who often hired her was the Powell family. They were in her neighborhood, and they had three children. Suzanne began babysitting for them at around age 10 up until the time of her death, which was about six years later. Jean Powell was the mother, and Suzanne considered this woman to be her friend. Jean was separated from her husband, Glenn Powell, but he lived close to them and maintained a cordial relationship with his ex-wife, and he was also close to his kids. Glenn would come by to see his kids a lot, and he would also come by to buy drugs. They lived in a small Victorian house. The address was 97 Laneworthy Road in Manchester. Jean 
dealt drugs, mostly crystal meth. And apparently she was really good at it and did a booming business. The Powell house was frequently filled with people wanting to buy drugs. I'm sure you could picture the typical house. A lot of neighborhoods have them. The drug den or crack house, as some people call them. It's a place where people can go to buy drugs and also use them and party. Jean would allow Suzanne Capper to hang out at her house when Suzanne skipped school. In 1990, Suzanne's mom and her stepdad, who she was very close to, separated and planned to divorce. This absolutely devastated Suzanne. This was her father figure, and she could not stand to see her family broken in this way. To escape all this and the arguments and problems at home, Suzanne often stayed at Jean Powell's house. Her older sister, Michelle, also rented a room at the Powell's house for a few months. But in August of 1992, Michelle left due to the number of unsavory characters that were seeking drugs or... Also, it was said that Jean stole cars and then sold the parts. So there was a lot of stuff going on that Michelle did not want to be a part of. She even referred to these people as, quote, the evil new friends of Jean's that were constantly coming round, end quote. Now, of these new friends... One was Bernadette McNeely. She was a 24-year-old who also had three children. She was evicted from her home, mostly because of her heavy drug use and otherwise erratic behavior. She moved into 97 Laneworthy Road with her kids and boyfriend, Anthony Dudson. Now, I say boyfriend, but... He was a lot younger than her. He was 16 years old. So, yeah. Pretty soon, he would also start to sleep with Jean Powell. Now, stuff started to happen that Michelle witnessed and did not like at all. Michelle began to see some early teasing and mistreatment of Suzanne especially by Jean Powell and Bernadette McNeely. It seems like they would just tease and taunt Suzanne for sport. And Suzanne just would take it and never fought back because she was not very confrontational by nature. She was just very sweet and a people pleaser. Michelle would comment on this and say, quote, she wanted to pamper their every whim. She would do whatever they told her to do. Suzanne was a big people pleaser. End quote. This kind of abuse is so sad because Suzanne just seems like such a nice person. 
And to see her being taken advantage of this early on is really not a good sign. And it's also very, very heartbreaking. Michelle left the house eventually. And then she warned her younger sister to stay away from their place. She was concerned for her welfare and she could see the mistreatment she was receiving and knew that it would not get better. It would only lead to worse things. And boy, she was right. But the problem is Suzanne considered these people her friends. So she continued to visit the Powell house on a regular basis. And she also did not want to be at home around this time either. Sadly, all this would escalate. In October of 1992, Suzanne moved into the Powell house. This was probably to escape the growing tensions in her own home with her stepfather's divorce from her mother. There were a lot of children in the house and a lot of people. Suzanne would have to share a mattress on the kitchen floor with Bernadette McNeely. 18-year-old Jeffrey Lee also took up with Jean Powell around this time and came to the house a lot. Jean Powell's younger brother, Clifford Hayes, nicknamed Pook, was also a regular at the house. Both Jeffrey and Clifford, or Pook, were very heavy drug users. And they often did a lot of drugs around the house. Things were getting worse for Suzanne. At one point, shortly before her murder, Jean Powell beat up Suzanne and it is unknown why, but it was probably for nothing. She hurt her so bad that Suzanne went to her mother's house for refuge. Very sadly, Elizabeth Capper, her mother, turned her away. And she told her that if she was going to associate with people like this, she wasn't welcomed back into the Capper home. I guess her mother was trying to teach Suzanne some sort of lesson. But sadly, this was not what was going to help Suzanne. And it did not help Suzanne. It just left her with nowhere to go. Suzanne went to her stepfather's and some friends' houses for short periods of time. But eventually, she would return to the Powell house. By most accounts, Suzanne was probably living either with her stepfather or a friend's house during this time. But sadly, she would eventually return to the Powell house one last time. Jean Powell called Suzanne and asked her to come by the house. She told her that this boy Suzanne had a crush on was there, and he really, really wanted to see her. Suzanne was, of course, delighted about this, and she hurried right over. 
Sadly, this would cost her her life. She was killed because someone evil took advantage of her own kind and trusting nature. Two events fueled the horror to come. One involved a puffy coat and the other involved a case of pubic lice. Jean and Glenn Powell, along with Bernadette McNeely and Dudson, were waiting for Suzanne to arrive. They wanted to deliver some kind of payback. Now, it is not clear in court records what led to this belief, but Bernadette was absolutely convinced that Suzanne had stolen a pink puffy winter coat. No one ever saw Suzanne with the coat. It's likely stolen by someone else in the house. There were a lot of junkies around. Or it could even have been misplaced by McNeely, who was on a lot of drugs. But in her mind, she blamed Suzanne. And she wanted to get revenge on her also. Now things start to get a little graphic here. Bernadette McNeely was dating Anthony Dudson, as I said earlier. Jean was also sleeping with Anthony at this time. They were not involved in a three-way relationship. He was sleeping with both women at different times. Bernadette and Anthony often used the mattress in the kitchen floor to have sexual relations. As you remember from earlier, this is where Suzanne had also slept. Both McNeely and Dudson contracted pubic lice, and Bernadette was convinced that Suzanne was the source. She even convinced Anthony that this was the case. This was extremely unlikely because Suzanne was not known to be sexually active. In fact, Anthony later confided to Jean Powell that he believed Bernadette was the original source and she infected both him and Suzanne who just slept on the mattress as well. McNeely and Dudson had to shave their pubic hair to get rid of the infestation. And because of her own guilt or embarrassment, Bernadette raged loud and long about Suzanne being a great slut who infected them both. And she also kept talking about how she was overdue for a payback. The group consisting of Jean and Glenn Powell, Bernadette McNeely, and Anthony Dudson, all high on crystal meth, were soon amped up to dish out a dose of retribution to the resident scapegoat. But this time, it would go 
well beyond sport. Well beyond. Now, I don't know much about meth or drugs in general, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Meth doesn't make someone evil. It doesn't transform angels into devils. It does, however, amplify what is already there, good or evil. So let's say someone very nice and kind experienced meth at a very high dose. They wouldn't become a torturer of innocent, vulnerable people. Now let's just say, for example, a matronly nun was on meth. I know, just bear with me here. She would probably not become a torturer of the innocent. Likely, her delusions would reflect her nature and everyday beliefs. She'd probably hear the voice of Jesus, smell incense, or manically pray the rosary. The most basic definition of psychosis is having sensory experiences that don't exist in the, quote, real world. That the rest of us inhabit. Often hallucinations. They can be auditory. That's where you can hear something that can't be heard by others. Visual, where you see something which really isn't there. Or tactile. Hallucinations that involve the sense of touch. And this is the famous example of people on meth that think bugs are crawling all over their skin. They feel that they are there, but others can't see them. Psychosis, of course, is an ingredient of schizophrenia. And its presence is part of the criteria for a diagnosis. These types of delusions are termed persistent. That means that they're ongoing. Whereas psychosis brought on by drug use is transitionary or temporary. And it will stop once the drug effects have worn off. Most communities lump them all together. And the hallucinations experienced vary greatly depending on what drug is ingested and how much of the drug is ingested. Meth psychosis is nothing like that experienced by losers of drugs like LSD or mushrooms. They are completely different. The studies performed by researcher Timothy Leary in the early 1960s revealed a strong mystical and spiritual aspect experienced by users. In fact, of the 10 people who participated in one study involving LSD, eight went on to become spiritual leaders in their particular faiths, either a priest, a preacher, a minister, or something like that. Now, if you compare that with meth users who experienced its unique blend of psychosis by giving it the name, the devil's drug, 
their experience were vastly different. Meth is highly addictive, and it prevents sleep and suppresses the appetite. Even more scary, it alters brain chemistry, which can bring on very powerful delusions. And these delusions aren't kind delusions. They're not telling you, you look great, have a great day. They're not spiritual or soothing. They're most likely always evil. Now, of course, the group of people who participated in Suzanne's torture and later on murder were not nuns. They were far from it. They were long-term drug users, prone to violence, and involved in the underworld of a rough area of Manchester. There is also something else I want to talk about here, and that's what's known as groupthink. That's the mode of thinking that members of an in-group engage in. They seek agreement and conformity to the extent that it tends to override the individual's own realistic assessment of situations and other courses of action. But let's be clear about this. It does not strip a person of their free will or morality. It's not an irresistible influence, but it is an influence. And some people are more prone to this than others. You always hear about people in group situations that do things they wouldn't normally do or sit back and watch others do things they wouldn't normally sit back and watch because of the group mentality. You see this happen in school a lot when a child gets bullied and there's a group that either encourages it, joins in, or sits around and does nothing to help. Some people just want to be liked by the more popular leaders of the group. So this is why this can happen. So like I said before, Jean calls Suzanne up and says that there's this boy Suzanne has a crush on that really wants to see her at the house. So she asks her to come over. And Suzanne obliges. She's excited to see this guy that's there that she has a crush on and potentially talk to him and get to know him more. But sadly, that's not what happens. What happens next is very horrific. This is where we're going to stop part one of the Suzanne Capper case. Part two is next week, and it is where we talk about when Suzanne goes back to the house, the torture, and later the murder. Then what happens to everyone involved? That'll be next week. And this is where it gets super graphic. Thank you so much for joining me on True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. If you could, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This really helps everyone find the show. Also, if you could, subscribe wherever you are listening to podcasts. 
please remember to follow me on Instagram at TrueCrimeWorks. If you have any ideas for new shows, you could either send me a message on Instagram or email me TrueCrimeWorks at gmail.com. I look forward to talking to you next week about part two of the Suzanne Capper murder. Part one, we learned about Suzanne Capper and how this young adult with special needs became the victim of an unimaginable ordeal at the hands of people that she actually considered to be her friends. She would become the victim of a rage-fueled meth psychosis and part of groupthink, which was terrible. Her torture and death highlights the most extreme cruelty and depravity that one human can perpetrate on another. It's really sad to me that this happened to anyone, let alone such a sweet young lady. I'm surprised that I haven't heard more about this case. Maybe it's because I'm in the United States or maybe it was the time it happened. But still, I think more awareness needs to be on cases like this when it's cases of groupthink because there's always someone in these cases that can help the victim. And they can go from being part of the problem to the solution. Whether it's something major like this or something maybe not as life or death. It may be hard to stand up for the bully or the leader of whatever's going on, but sometimes it just has to be done. <laughs>